In the annals of history, there are figures who rise above the rest, leaving an indelible mark on the world. Ivar Ragnarsson, also known as Ivar the Boneless, was one such legendary leader whose life and exploits have become an integral part of Scandinavian and British history. His ascent from one of the great leaders of the Great Heathen Army to the King of All Norsemen in Dublin and Britannia has left a mark on history and cemented his name in legend. Ivar was truly a captivating figure, ending the royal bloodlines of the ancient kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria. He was a warrior, driven by a restless spirit to conquer. Ivar's legacy is shrouded in myth and mystery. Ivar's nickname, the Boneless, has perplexed historians for centuries, with theories ranging from a physical disability to metaphoric descriptions of his cunning. One thing that all sources agree on is that Ivar was very intelligent and was devious in nature. Ivar's strategic brilliance and leadership skills laid the foundation for the Uyumer's ascendancy. The Uyumer were also known as the House of Ivar, with Ivar the Boneless being the founder of the dynasty. For a time, they were the most powerful Viking clan in Britain, with Ivar's shadow looming over Britain even after his death. Ivar had dedicated his life to battle, ruling much of the Irish Sea, the Kingdom of Dublin, the western coast of Scotland, and some parts of northern England. However, his brilliance and savage reputation is what held his empire together. The kings of the divided land of England would rejoice when they heard King Ivar had finally died. However, his brother Halfdan Ragnarsson, another legendary warrior and king, would make sure his brother's empire would not disintegrate into nothing. He was in Mercia when he heard of his brother's death and would make his way north at the head of a battle-hardened Viking army who had been fighting the Saxon kings for nearly a decade. At their height, the Uyumer were the most fearsome and wide-reaching power in the British Isles. This is the story of the Ivar dynasty and the effect that one legendary raider and king had on Britain through his many descendants. Ivar's descendants were of Celtic and Norse descent. Most of the legendary sagas were written about Ivar himself, and since his descendants settled in the lands he conquered and hardly went back to Scandinavia at all, all that remains of them are fragmented remains from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Annals of Ulster, and the annals of the Kingdom of Ireland. Nevertheless, the sources will shed some light on the nature and the rule of the Uyumer. Bardur Iverson, the son of Ivar, would forge his legacy in blood, much like his Viking ancestors. Bardur Iverson, often overshadowed by his illustrious father, was born into a lineage of Viking legends. Ivar the Boneless, a Viking warrior of great repute, was his father and Bardur inherited both his legacy and the weight of expectations that came with it. Despite the shadow cast by his father's renown, Bardur would go on to forge his own path in the tumultuous world of the Vikings. Bardur's early life was undoubtedly shaped by the warrior culture of the Norsemen. He would have been exposed to the harsh realities of Viking life from a young age, learning the arts of warfare 
navigation, and leadership. These skills would prove invaluable as he navigated the complex and often treacherous political landscape of the Viking Age. The earliest mention of Bardur in the Irish Annals is in part of a saga embedded within the fragmentary annals of Ireland, a combination of Irish chronicles. In an entry dated the year 867, Bardur is named as a Jarl of Lochlan, which is Gaelic for Scandinavia, conveying he was bestowed with titles due to the repute of his father Ivar the Boneless. He is mentioned again in the year 872, where he is said to have raided in several medieval Irish kingdoms. Like his forebears, Bardur would plunder different lands for wealth and reputation. After the death of Ivar the Boneless, in the year 873, Bardur would succeed him as the King of Dublin, and according to some sources, Oystin, Olafsson and Bardur would rule as co-kings, following the death of Ivar. Halfdan Ragnarsson was in England when he heard the news of his brother Ivar's death. Halfdan was the commander of the great heathen army, and he had already taken Northumbria, East Anglia and Mercia, with the help of his brothers, and he had installed puppet kings in each kingdom in order to fund his further invasions and keep stability in those lands. However, although his conquest of England was nearly complete, as the last kingdom remaining until England utterly fell was Wessex, his brother's death would lead him north to Ireland. Halfdan would take his contingent of the great heathen army to Dublin and leave command to the other regiments to Guthrum a Danish lord and his brother, Ubba Ragnarsson. In the annals of Ulster, Halfdan would deceitfully kill Oystein Olafsson, one of the kings of Dublin deceitfully, in the year 875. It seems Halfdan was campaigning to regain the kingdom of his fallen brother and this would undoubtedly have made him the most powerful man in Britain, especially with the additional influence he had on the Saxon kingdoms he had taken. Halfdan would proclaim himself as the King of Dublin, while Ivar Sunbardur was once again overshadowed by the legend that was associated with being a Ragnarsson. Nevertheless, Halfdan did not remain in Ireland for long, having matters to attend to in England. Halfdan would then proclaim himself as the King of Northumbria in the year 876, ending the rule of puppet kings there. He was quickly becoming the most powerful warlord in Britain, stacking up the crowns of many ancient people. Following Halfdan's coronation, Bardur would remain in Dublin. Uncle and nephew found themselves on opposing sides of a power struggle, a common occurrence in Viking society where leadership and authority were often determined through physical prowess. Bardur would finally decide to depose his uncle due to him residing in Northumbria and would take the rule of Dublin back. Halfdan would gather his warriors and would return to Ireland to try to recapture the city, but he was met by his nephew Bardur at the head of an army which resulted in the Battle of Strangford Lau in the year 877. During the battle, the legendary Halfdan Ragnarsson would meet his end and was slain. 
the consequences of Bardur's actions likely rippled through Viking and English society, affecting many kingdoms, clans, allies and rivals. In such a volatile environment, alliances could shift rapidly. Bardur would once again become the King of Dublin, however some sources claim that after the Battle of Strangford Lough, he was so wounded that he was forever lame after, conveying that Bardur's physical prowess was never the same after the fateful battle against his uncle Halfdan Ragnarsson. Bardur Iverson killing his uncle exemplifies the intricate dynamics of Viking society. The impact of Halfdan's death allowed the many ancient kingdoms in Britain to regain their power and resist further Viking invasions. The next mention of Bardur is in the year 881, in the Annals of Ulster and the Chronicon Scrotorum, which both describe his death. According to the Chronicon, the Oratory of Canaan was destroyed by the foreigners, and many treasures were taken from it. Afterwards Bardur, son of Ivar, head of the Norsemen, died by a miracle of God and Canaan. In the Annals of Ulster it also says, The Oratory of Canaan was destroyed by the foreigners, and many people were taken from it. Afterwards Bardur, a great despot of the Norsemen, was killed by Saint Canaan. The sources attribute Bardur's death as a miracle after a raid in Dalik, where Saint Canaan built the first stone church in Ireland. While the specifics of this event may remain shrouded in the mists of time and legend, its broader implications underscore the fierce and unpredictable nature of the Viking Age. The kingship of Dublin and the kingdom of the Uyamere would pass to Siegfried Iverson after the death of his brother Bardur. However, Siegfried would soon be murdered and wouldn't even last a decade on the throne being murdered in the year 888 by a kinsman. The empire then went to Citric Iverson, another son of Ivar the Boneless, and his rule would last for eight years. For most of his reign, Dublin was weakened by internal strife and dynastic feuds, but in the year 896, Citric was killed by a group of his unnamed kin of the Uyamere. After his death, there was a serious drop of political stability in the kingdom. It seems by Bardur killing his uncle Halfdan, this began a culture of blood feuds and kinslaying, which would continue in the generations to come. By the year 902, Ivar II was the king of Dublin, being the grandson of Ivar the Boneless. In the decades preceding his reign, Dublin was wrecked by internal strife and dynastic feuds greatly weakening the kingdom. The neighbouring Irish kings sought to take advantage of this to increase their own influence. An additional motivating factor may have been revenge for Viking raids on Irish religious sites, in which the Ivar dynasty would plunder notoriously. However, with much of the Viking power in Dublin diminished, and being a shadow of its former self, as it had been in the time of Ivar the Boneless. In the year 902, the kingdoms of Brega and Leinster, which were kingdoms in Northern Ireland, formed an alliance. They would storm Dublin, 
and drive Ivar II and his Vikings out of Ireland. Ivar, however, still controlled a vast empire and retreated to a territory in Scotland where he held much influence. Ivar II and his exiled Vikings would wage war during this period against Constantine II, the King of Alba in Scotland. According to the Annals of Ulster, in the year 904, he would go to war against the Picts. The Picts were an ancient warrior type of people who were the descendants of Iron Age tribes. Ivar would die in this expedition, and with the loss of Dublin, the Ivar dynasty's power and hold over Britain was fading. In the year 902, it is unknown how old Citrica was, although it is widely assumed he was a young man at this point, and would be fighting for his life. Up until this point, Ivar the Boneless and his descendants had made one of their bases in Dublin, but many Irish kings would come together and drive the Vikings out. Sitriga would be forced into exile and crossed the sea. He made his way to the Danelaw, where his family still held vast influence. Historians have speculated that the Ivar dynasty didn't have a unitary empire, but rather a set of lordships governed by the same dynasty and blood relatives in the family, depending on current circumstances. Due to this, the Uyamer clan had a foothold in the Danelaw, and Sitriga would go to this land and would rule it for well over a decade. This would have been possible, as during this time Edward the Elder, the son of Alfred the Great, was king, and England as we know it was not yet one united land, but rather fragmented kingdoms. The Danelaw was seen as a godless land that was inhabited by the Viking settlers there after the arrival of the great heathen army, assembled by the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, who was coincidentally Sitriga's great-grandfather. Sitriga and his clan had dominion over this land. Many Citric-marked coins were even found at Great Shelford and Cambridgeshire, portraying his rule. Sitriga would yearn for the days when the Ivar dynasty were all-powerful, and held lands all over Britain. For years he would bide his time in Northumbria, and would amass his men. When the time came, he and his dragon-headed longships would sail back to Ireland to reclaim his ancestral lands. This would culminate in the Battle of Confi in the year 917. According to the Annals of Ulster, this is what transpired. Sitriger, the grandson of Ivar, landed with his fleet at the border of Leinster. Ragnau, another grandson of Ivar, with his second fleet, moved against their enemy at Waterford. Niall, the High King of Ireland, led an army to make war on the heathens, and he halted on the 22nd of August, but the heathens came into the district on the same day. The Irish attacked them, and they fought from midday until the evening. It was a shower of blood, and many great warriors fell. However, heathen reinforcements would come, and they were tremendous in number. King Niall would proceed to fight, but God prevented a slaughter. After the battle, High King Niall sent word to the men of Leinster, 
that they would lay siege to the heathen encampment from a distance, but they were routed where over 500 men fell, and there too fell several kings and other nobles. After the battles, the immense royal fleet of Citrica landed in Dublin, and made their encampment there. Following his victory, Citrica occupied Dublin, and it would once again become a Norse stronghold. Citrica would proclaim himself as king, and many of the Irish kings would plot on Citrica's downfall, and the fall of the Uyamer dynasty. In the year 919, the High King Niall, who somehow survived the Battle of Confi, united a coalition of Irish kings to confront Citrica and drive him out of Dublin. The Irish kings would confront the army of Citrica in what is now known to history as the Battle of Island Bridge. However, although the High King Niall had brought together many kings, Citrica and his Viking forces would smash their army and win an overwhelming victory, in which six kings of Ireland would be killed on the battlefield, with the High King being amongst the fallen. This victory once again secured the dominance of the Ivar dynasty over Dublin, with Citrica's ancestral home now reclaimed. He would look east, to England, and the Danelaw. Citrica's cousin, or possibly brother, Ragnall, who was also the grandson of Ivar the Boneless, was gravely ill, and called on his kinsmen for the sake of his succession. Citrica would arrive in England, and began plundering by leading a raid in Cheshire. This, however, violated a peace agreement made between Edward the Elder, the king of the Anglo-Saxons, and his kinsman Ragnall. This may have been an act of defiance, conveying Citrica would not submit to Edward as Ragnall had. Nevertheless, Citrica would establish himself as the king of Jorvik and Northumbria during this time, where Edward of Wessex had no influence. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle makes no mention of Citrica during the years 921 to 924, probably due to the fact that it predominantly highlights the excellence of the Anglo-Saxon kings and warriors, and didn't want to exude Edward's will of not being able to overcome Citrica's. Upon the death of Edward, his son Ethelstan would become king, and he would meet with Citrica in the year 926. Ethelstan was a man of ambition, and no doubt wanting influence in Citrica's lands of Northumbria, he gave him his sister's hand in marriage to broker a peace. The marriage took place in Mercia, in the royal centre at Tamworth, where it seems Citriga converted to Christianity. The royal descendants of Alfred the Great and Ivar the Boneless, two kings who had fought many years ago, would finally be united through marriage. The union wouldn't last, and Citriga quickly renounced his wife and reverted to paganism. However, a war between Citrica and Ethelstan is not attested to in any source. Citrica died the following year, in the year 927, still young according to the Annals of Ulster, and his cause of death remains unknown. Ethelstan would later become the first king of England, uniting the Danelaw and the other lands to the north, and forcing all kings to heal. Whether he killed Citrica, 
due to the disrespect of abandoning his sister remains unknown, but it can be speculated, as Ethelstan was never shy when it came to taking out his rivals. Regardless, if Citrigo would have lived, he would have had to bend the knee, or would have been killed due to Ethelstan's plans for dominion over Britain. Nevertheless, Citrigo's legacy lives on, as he retook his ancestral kingdom of Dublin, and established a foothold in the Danelaw and Northumbria, that would pass on to his successors in the Ivar dynasty. Guthrif would have been expelled in the year 902 from Dublin, with his kinsman Citriga, where he and other members of the Uyamer quickly conquered Northumbria. Guthrith is first mentioned in the Annals of Ulster, in the year 918, which describe him as leading a battalion of troops at the Battle of Corbridge, in northern England. The battle was fought between the King of Northumbria at the time, Ragnar of Ivar, and his allies, among them being his kinsman Guthrif, against the forces of King Constantine II of Alba, and Ildred of Bambra, who had previously been driven out of his lands, at the hands of the Ivar dynasty. The Annals of Ulster informs us that the Norse army divided itself into four columns. The Scots destroyed the first three columns, but were ambushed by the last. This unit had remained hidden behind a hill, and was commanded by Ragnall. The Scots, however, managed to escape this disaster. It seems it was an indecisive engagement. Although it did allow Ragnall to further establish himself in Northumbria, in the year 919, Ragnall descended on York, where he took the city, and proclaimed himself as king. The Bernaceans remained under him, although Ildred I of Bambra would still pay homage to the King of England. Ragnar would die in the year 921, with Citriga succeeding him as the King of Northumbria. Guthrif is mentioned in the annals that same year, taking control of Dublin. One of his first acts as king was to lead several raids. According to the Annals of Ulster and the Annals of the Four Masters, the Vikings of Dublin ravaged a wide area. Many monasteries were put to the torch, and so were prayer houses. Upon Citrica's death in the year 924, Guthrif would quickly try to seize power. He was in Dublin at the time, and would leave the rule of Dublin to his sons, while he made his way to Northumbria, in order to take the title of king there. However, Citrica's sons would quickly seize the city of Dublin while Guthrif was away, creating another power struggle within the Ivar dynasty. While Guthrif was in Northumbria, his rule would only last for six months, as Ethelstan, the king of Wessex, Mercia, and East Anglia, would drive him out of England. Ethelstan at this point, was the most powerful king the British Isles had ever seen, commanding a vast army, navy, and the strength of three ancient kingdoms, as well as having many kings for allies. According to William of Malmesbury, Guthrif went to Scotia following Citrica's death, to attend a meeting with King Ethelstan, King Constantine II of Scotland, and King Owen of Strathclyde. The kings would make an alliance, and Guthrif would besiege the city of York, with the aid of King Ethelstan. However, 
Ethelstan would turn on the Vikings amidst the height of the carnage, and would begin slaughtering their forces. Guthrif himself was captured, and was allowed to return to Ireland under oath of never returning to Northumbria, under pain of death. Ethelstan and his Saxon forces then ravaged the city. This would result in Guthrif returning to Dublin, where he quickly deposed the sons of Sitriga and continued to rule as king there. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle makes no mention of Guthrif, simply stating that Ethelstan succeeded Sitriga as king in Northumbria, and thereafter held a meeting with other kings in Britain, establishing peace. This could be due to the Chronicle glorifying the acts of the Saxon kings, and not wanting Ethelstan to seem like a tyrant. Following his return to Dublin, the next mention of Guthrif in contemporary accounts is with regard to the raids he led. In the year 930, he plundered Dunmore Cave, killing a thousand people in the attack. It is believed that the cave was being used as a temporary dwelling place for the native Irish. By the year 934, Guthrif would die of sickness. The Annals of Ulster describe him as a most cruel king of the Norsemen. After his death, his son Anulf would succeed him. Anulf was known as King of the Danes by some, a title signifying overlordship of all the Scandinavians in the Irish Sea, but for most of his life, he was known as the King of Dublin and Northumbria, a Viking pagan devoted to the Norse gods, who had forged his reputation in blood. As with many Vikings during this period, very little is known about Anulf's youth. According to legend, Anulf would raid Irish monasteries and settlements, and would take place in several large-scale raids. By the year 934, Anulf was now the King of Dublin, suggesting that he was the most powerful of Ivar's great-grandsons, as there were often blood feuds within the family, which many a time would result in the death of a member of the Ivar dynasty, with them repeatedly being murdered by their own kinsmen. Anulf had ambition just like his ancestor Ivar, and he would seek to unite Ireland under his rule, a feat which none of the Viking kings of Dublin had achieved before. In the year 937, war would come to Limerick, a powerful establishment of the Vikings on a walled city known as King's Island, which would rival the power of Dublin. Anulf would soon march to war, and soon enough the Battle of Limerick would take place. Nothing is known of the battle, except Anulf was victorious. The King of Limerick was captured, and his fleet was destroyed. The king was then taken back to Dublin in chains as a prisoner, and Anulf had now expanded his empire, and amassed more men, and more ships. If the legends are to be believed, Anulf's fleet was said to be the greatest the British Isles had ever seen, since the great heathen army came to the shores over half a century earlier. Now that Anulf had conquered Limerick, he could now call himself the Viking King of all Norsemen in Ireland, and could summon an army so numerous in size, it would cause kings to tremble. Anulf would then turn his attention towards Northumbria, a largely pagan land that had once been ruled by his father, 
but it had since fallen to King Ethelstan, the most powerful Saxon king that the British Isles had ever seen. Ethelstan, the son of Edward the Elder, was determined to unite England under the House of Wessex, and he had a vision of himself as the master of all of Britain, dreaming what no Roman, Viking or Saxon king had ever done before. The Vikings in York would submit to Ethelstan after the death of Anulf's father Guthrif and proclaim him as king. As Northumbria had just fallen to Ethelstan and his conquest of the Danelaw being complete, he was now not just the king of Saxons, but the king of the English. A meeting would soon be held with all of the earls and kings in the north, and something truly legendary was about to take place. King Owain of Strathclyde, King Constantine of Alba, Eildred of Bambra, and King Howell of Wales all submitted to Ethelstan in the year 927 and accepted his supremacy, which led to seven years of peace in the north. This was the first time a southern king had taken control of the north, and the usurpation was met with resistance by the Northumbrians who had always resisted southern rule. However, King Constantine of Alba, along with Howell the Good of Wales, Ildred of Bambra, and King Owain of Strathclyde, would accept Ethelstan's overlordship. Ethelstan became the first king of the Anglo-Saxon peoples, and in effect, an overlord of Britain. During the height of Ethelstan's reign, from the year 925 onwards, Rulers from Wales and Scotland attended his court. However, in the year 934, Ildred of Bambra would die, and Ethelstan and Constantine would dispute over Northumbrian territory. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle briefly records the invasion of Scotland, and that King Ethelstan forced Constantine into submission. The flames of war were ever apparent, and Ethelstan had made the North and Scotland bleed, and uniting them into his own kingdom would prove extremely difficult, as their leaders were now bent on independence. Anulf would then marry King Constantine's daughter, cementing an alliance between the King of Dublin and the King of Alba. It seems Ethelstan's fragile peace was dissolving. In the year 937, King Anulf and King Constantine would also join forces with King Owain of Strathclyde in an alliance against Ethelstan. Virtually all the kings who had sworn loyalty to him in the year 927 had now turned against him. Alone, they couldn't even challenge him, but together, they thought they could crush him and take their lands and independence back. The three allied kings with their armies would plunder English territory in the summer of the year 937, with their aim being to dissolve England and break Ethelstan's source of power. This would culminate in the Battle of Brunanborough, and the victor would have England's fate in their hands. The invading armies entered England in two waves, Constantine and Owain coming from the north, raiding on their way south, while Anulf's forces would join them on the way. Ethelstan and his army would travel north through Mercia, 
where he met the invading forces of Scots and Vikings at Brunanborough. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the battle lasted all day, and both sides would fight valiantly. But there were never so many dead in one place in England's history. There was a period of prolonged fighting, before Ethelstan's army began to overwhelm the invaders. Ethelstan's army would then give chase, slaying many enemy troops. According to the annals of Ulster, the battle was described as great, lamentable, and horrible, and records that several thousands of Norsemen fell. Among the casualties were five kings and seven earls. Constantine also lost several friends and family, including his own son. Anulf also lost many kinsmen. Ethelstan's victory at Brunanborough prevented the dissolution of England, but it failed to unite the island as he had done previously. Anulf would flee back to Dublin after the battle, defeated and disgraced. This defeat, however, would not affect Anulf for long, as he was soon raiding again and living a Viking life. In the year 938, he would raid in Kilcullen, where he was said to have taken a thousand prisoners. He would still personally raid, and would actively try to expand his influence and wealth. Ethelstan would die in the year 939, and Anulf would exploit the chaos after his death. Upon Ethelstan's death, Anulf would sail to York, where he quickly established himself as the king of Northumbria, just as his father Guthrif had before he was driven out by the now dead King Ethelstan. Simeon of Durham's Historia Regum records that Anulf and the new king of the English, Edmund, met in Leicester and came to an agreement on dividing England between the two of them, and upon either of their deaths, the survivor would rule the country. This conveys Anulf's level of power, but also how quickly Ethelstan's empire had collapsed upon his death. This peace was short-lived, as Anulf would soon seize the five boroughs of the Danelaw. Anulf's empire was quickly expanding. He was the king of Dublin and Northumbria, and was expanding the old Viking territories. In the year 941, the Chronicle of Melrose records that Anulf raided an ancient Anglican church in Northumbria on the Scottish border, perhaps to secure trade and communication routes. However, that same year in the year 941, the most powerful Viking in Britain died, and was described in the annals as the King of the Danes, portraying his power, vast influence, and reputation. With Anulf's death, Edmund would take the land back he had lost, and in the year 942, he recovered the five boroughs, once again making England whole. Anulf would be the last descendant of Ivar the Boneless to hold considerable power in Britain. Again, the death of a king had caused chaos, and Northumbria was firmly back in English hands. But war would rage on in the north for decades, as rival kings and lords would fight over the last disputed kingdom in England. The House of the Uyamer would continue their kingship in Dublin, but never again regained their kingdom in England or Northumbria. This is due to Ethelstan having united the ancient kingdoms of England, 
and made them into one. The descendants of Ivar would no longer have the power and authority around Britain they once held in the time of Ivar the Boneless and his sons and grandsons, with some members meeting unbelievable ends, such as King Jarkne, who in the year 986 was killed while drunk by his own slave. By the Norman invasion of Ireland in the 12th century, the Uyamir had fallen into obscurity and the Normans would ensure the destruction of the medieval Norse, Irish and Gaelic aristocracy. This destruction was completed with the later Tudor conquest. Nevertheless, the Uyamir dynasty's power and legacy in Viking history were significant and far-reaching. At the height of the empire's power, they commanded lands in Scotland, the Isle of Man, the Hebrides, Dublin and Northumbria. Their military conquests, establishment of Viking-controlled regions and contributions to trade and urban development left an enduring imprint on England, Ireland and the broader British Isles. The Ivar dynasty story exemplifies the dynamic and often ruthless nature of the Viking Age, where power, ambition and adaptation were key to survival and influence. Their legacy continues to fascinate historians and enthusiasts, serving as a testament to the enduring impact of Viking leaders and dynasties on the course of history. If you enjoyed the video be sure to like, subscribe and share, and I'll see you all soon for another History Profile. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.